0: Uh, Well, we're spending our summer going through the book of Proverbs, and we're doing it really by grouping the topics in this book together and seeing uh, all all the different areas that God gives us wisdom for our lives. And today we're going to be talking about, uh, throughout the book of Proverbs, how we use our words. And uh, as we've been going through this series, I know one of the things that I've been feeling every single week is this sense of falling short. That when we hear these commands of God, we don't read them and think, you know, I'm awesome. We read these commands and we see the ways that we are not awesome. It's impossible to read through the Word of God, to look at the face of Jesus, compare ourselves to Him, and then feel really good about ourselves. Um, And it's kind of like when you're watching the Olympics and you watch the athletes there, regardless if they're playing a sport that you play, you don't watch the Olympics and say, you know, I'm a pretty good cyclist. Or, you know, I'm pretty fast. Or I'm a good diver. I'm a good swimmer. You look at that and you say, I'm really bad. You know, I watch the Olympics and the only one who makes me feel good about myself is Mr. Bean. Um, that just uh, I feel feel like i'm pretty decent compared to that guy And we we do tend to find that person to compare ourselves to all during the week We always compare ourselves down, you know, we're trying to lose weight You say i'm not doing that great But I heard this story about this one guy who ate so much He couldn't even leave his room anymore and they had to bring a ham into him And he ate the whole thing every day and he was really sick So, So it's not that bad and we tend to compare ourselves by ourselves And when and god says that when we do that, we're not wise so he's given us his word, the Bible, and we can go to the Bible and compare ourselves not to other people, but to compare ourselves to God's perfect and holy and righteous law. And when we do that, that always brings with it a sense of guilt. And that's, that's by design. Uh, God gave us his law so that we could know what sin is, so that we could know what righteousness is, so we could see where the standard is and know that we've fallen short, but he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just leave us in that place of guilt. He doesn't just say, you've been bad, now try to make up for it. He doesn't just leave us there and say, hey, good luck with that. You should be good from now on. He brings us under conviction. He shows us from his word what's right and what's wrong, shows us how wrong we are, and then uses that law, the New Testament says, like a schoolmaster, to point us to Christ. That we're supposed to read through these commands in Scripture and see the ways that we've fallen short and feel the weight of that, but then call out to God for, sa- for salvation to call to Jesus as a Savior. And when we do, we find that he is a Savior, he is good, he does rescue us from our sins, he rescues us from ourselves, and then he changes us internally so that obedience does start to flow out of our lives. Um, so when we look through this book of Proverbs and we, we feel that weight, let's make sure that we allow that weight to point us to Jesus, just like it was designed to do. Um, so today when we talk about our words, we're going to feel it. We're going to feel the ways that we've fallen short, the ways that we haven't measured up. And the hope of all of that is that we'll turn to Jesus for salvation and forgiveness and redemption, and that as he changes our hearts, we'll actually change the way that we speak. So, so let's talk first about the power of our words. Listen to Proverbs eighteen twenty one. He says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So according to the Bible, our words have power. They have power to harm Or to kill, he says death is in the power of the tongue. And they have power to give life or to heal. So the words that we say are not inconsequential, they're powerful, they can give life or death. And God, in all of his wisdom, when he was creating the world and finding a way to reveal himself to people, he did it in words. He gave us the Bible, and in all of his wisdom, he gave us words to reveal who he is to us. So words do matter. You know, it's popular today to minimize the importance of words, minimize the importance of the word of God, and think that there must be some superior way to communicate the story of the gospel to other people. You know, maybe we could just do deeds of love to serve them. Uh, Maybe I could just reach out and be nice to my neighbor. Uh, Maybe we could communicate this through some other means, some other way, and all those things are good. We should be loving our neighbors, serving our neighbors, doing deeds of love, communicating in every way we can to them. But ultimately, we should be using words to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel of Jesus is not just that we're nice people. The gospel of Jesus is that a Savior came. It's a story about Jesus Christ, who's God and man, and came to this world and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. And we communicate that with words, not just with our deeds. The deeds should be there, but the words have to be there too, because God has designed everything so that words have power. You know, we teach our kids, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that verse is not in the Bible, because that verse isn't true. According to the Bible, words can hurt, they do damage, there's life and death in the power of the tongue. Listen to Proverbs 12:18. He says, there is one whose rash words are like sword, sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So he says that our words can be like the thrusts of a sword. And if you stick a sword in somebody and then pull it out, saying, I'm sorry, doesn't heal that. There's more healing that's required. You're at least going to need some neosporin at that point because that sword does some damage. It, It doesn't, just saying, sorry, just pulling the sword out doesn't reverse all that damage that you just caused. And he says, there's one whose words are like that. It's like taking a sword and sticking it into somebody and doing that kind of damage and then thinking, just saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that will heal. It doesn't heal. It may start a process of healing, but there can be lasting damage that's done with the words that we speak. And you see this in marriages all the time where, you know, the husband says some cruel words to his wife, and that totally changes the marriage. It changes the way that she looks at him. It changes the way that she thinks about him. It changes everything. And it can take years for her to recover from those harsh words that were, were stabbed into her. We'll see the, the effects of this with parents and the way that they'll use words as a weapon against their kids. When I was a youth pastor, I would counsel teenagers all the time whose parents would use words against them and tell them that they were worthless, they'd never amount to anything, tell them they were ugly. And when teens heard that and believed that, it didn't just hurt them for five minutes, it changed the entire direction of their lives. When, when the person that God put in their lives to be an authority and to steer them in the right direction, used their words like sword thrusts, it did damage. So according to scripture, there's a lot of power in our words. And we need to hear people on the outside speaking true words to us so that we can know who we are, so we can know what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, we, we like to say it doesn't matter what anybody thinks, but the truth is none of us really think that. You know, I know if, if every week after church when I was talking to people, people were leaving and they were saying, you know, that was a terrible sermon today. And then, you know, the next guy comes up and says, man, when you talk, you just make God so much more boring. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, I was kind of interested and then I came here. You know, I came in here considering Christianity, and you have sold me on being an atheist. Um, if I was hearing that week after week from people leaving the room, eventually I would just say, I don't think I'm a preacher. I, I, I'm in the wrong business here. Who I am and who I believe myself to be is shaped by those outside words. You know, if someone says the best part of service today was the coffee, I'm, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling the weight of that. And eventually, over time, if I believe that, that changes me, it changes what I do, it changes the course of my life because I'll believe words. You know, on the flip side, encouraging words, words that bring God's wisdom, words that with the gospel, the message of Jesus in them, can change a person and help heal them. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So there's a way to bring a good word to someone who's anxious and weighed down, And when they're weighed down and you speak that good word from God and you speak that wisdom to them, it can gladden them and change the course of their day and even over time change the course of their lives. So our words, according to Scripture, have tremendous power. Now, before I go further, I do want to talk about the limit on that power. The first proverb that we quoted today, Proverbs 18.21, says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. That's a verse that's commonly quoted within a very large section of the evangelical church today that's sometimes called the word faith or the word of faith movement. And within this movement, their view of the power of words is way too high and actually very unbiblical. Uh, What this movement basically says is that our words, human words, have creative power that we can speak our reality into existence. That we look at our lives, we look at our circumstances and things that are broken around them, and the solution to that is to speak a different reality and to make that true. You know, we, we look and we see that we don't have the health, wealth, and prosperity that we think that the, the Bible promises when, when it doesn't. We think it promises that, and the reason we don't have that is because we're not speaking powerful words of faith over our circumstances. So if someone's life is going badly, they don't have that health, wealth, and prosperity, then they need, they need to stand up and speak prosperity over their lives. They need to speak healing into their sickness. They need to speak powerful words to change their circumstances. That isn't what the Bible is teaching when it tells us that words have power. The Bible does not teach us that our words are God's means of changing the circumstances around us. And I bring this up um, because this is a big group within Christianity. This isn't some obscure group of people out there. Like, you're never going to hear me really harping on snake handlers here because it's not like that's a growing movement within Christianity. We've never had anyone come in and say, we need more rattlesnakes around here. I don't feel like we have to fight that issue. But if you go to the iTunes and you look at the top 10 podcasts under religion and spirituality, the top two, as of this morning, are word of faith preachers. Three, four, five, and six are great. Um, but then I think it was seven and eight are also word of faith preachers. Four of the top 10 are, are people who believe this, and they're some of the most downloaded messages that are out there. So that's a big deal. By the way, two of the top ten are Acts 29 churches. So, so we're, We've got some good stuff going on, too. And one's Keller, and he's, he's too smart to be in Acts 29, but if he ever got hit in the head or something, he, he'd fit right in. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but within that group, some of the messages that people are downloading the most are messages from people who are saying you can speak your reality into existence. Some of the most purchased books within Christianity teach this. Let me just read a passage from one. He says, you have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is a spiritual principle, and it works whether what you're saying is good or bad, positive or negative. That is a spiritual principle, but it's a spiritual principle that the Bible calls witchcraft, where we can speak a reality into existence, where we, can, we have these words that basically are spells, and if we cast a spell on our circumstances, then our circumstances will change. Uh, This idea is the idea that faith is not just trusting God and trusting his promises, but faith is this force that changes things. And the container that we pack faith into are are our words. And we speak those words and they go out and they hit our circumstances and change them. That's the basic premise of, of the word faith movement. And I tell you, if we believe that, we'll be incredibly discouraged. I mean, how discouraging is it for somebody who is dying of cancer and they believe that it's their fault for not speaking enough faith into their circumstances, for not speaking healing, when it may just be God's time for them. You know, I'm I'm speaking prosperity over my life, but I'm still putting down the road in a Pontiac Aztec with, with no air conditioning and wheel bearings going and it's it's dripping oil and, and I'm speaking Porsche over my life all day long, and then I get up and there's still an Aztec there. I mean, what's, am I being punished? Is this a cruel joke? Uh, I thought I was supposed to be able to create this better existence, and it's not changing. What am I doing wrong? You know, in seriousness, I really think there are a lot of people who, because they believe that their words are supposed to have more power than they do, are very discouraged and are even having serious doubts about their faith at this point because it just doesn't seem like their faith is doing what faith is supposed to do. Well, the Bible never teaches that our words can create teaches that God's words create, but it never says that ours do. Ours don't have that same kind of power. We're called to avoid people who bring witchcraft. Uh, We're called to stay away from that kind of teaching. So, So it's important for us to see that words have power, but also as Christians, we always need to recognize where our limits are. And this is a big problem for us in all kinds of categories. God tells us that he's unlimited and we're limited, but we don't like those limits. God says, here are my limits for your sexuality. And we say, well, I'm going to throw that off and make up a different limit, and I'm going to go with that one. God says, here are my limits for your gender roles. And we say, well, I'm going to throw those off and do something else. I'm going to make up my own. God says, here are the limits for the use of your money. You're supposed to be generous. You're supposed to be good. You're supposed to help the poor. And we say, you're not supposed to talk about that, God. I want to throw off that limit and do what I want to do. God says to us, your words have limited power. And we say, no, I want them to be powerful like yours. So we've got to be careful. Uh, death and life are in the, power, in the power of the tongue. Our words can hurt, our words can heal, but they don't have the same kind of supernatural power that God's words have. So we need to make sure that we learn to use our words well. We need to recognize their power, recognize that the power is limited and, and not fall into the trap of witchcraft, but then at the same time recognize that the power they do have is very real and can change an awful lot around us. So what does Proverbs say we're supposed to do with our words? And we're just going to go through a list of about eight different things here that it says we're supposed to do, the ways we're supposed to use our words. Uh, Proverbs 12.22, first of all, he says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Proverbs 12.19, he says, Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. So as Christians, we're called not to lie, but to speak the truth. And the reason for that is that when we lie to somebody, it's like we're sticking a sword in them. It's we're turning that person into our enemy. And we're saying, you don't deserve to know the truth. I want you to have a distorted view of reality so that you'll make the decision I want you to make instead of the decision that you would make if you knew all the truth. And what we end up doing then by lying is manipulating people instead of really being friends to them. Something we've got to watch out for is that friends don't manipulate, friends speak the truth. And if we're going to be friends with those around us, we should just speak the truth, unvarnished, make it clear, not try to spin things, not try to deceive without lying, which, which we're also good at doing, but to be people who communicate truth to those around us. We'll get back to the heart of this and why this is so hard in a second. But next, he says, uh, Proverbs ten eighteen: The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. So we were called first not to lie, but to speak the truth. And here we're called not to slander. And slander is the type of speech that divides the person that we're speaking to from the person we're speaking about. As Christians, we're called to avoid every form of divisive speech, of speech that divides people from one another. So if I can say something to you about this person over here, and you leave that conversation feeling like a wedge has been, drawn, been put between you and them, I've probably sinned in that situation. We should be speaking words. If we're talking about someone behind their back, it should be positive. It should be encouraging words. We should be noticing the evidence of God's grace in them so that someone that we're talking to walks away from that conversation feeling closer to them rather than divided from them. You know, the, the standard for whether our speech is gossip, whether it's slander, is are we dividing people or are we bringing them closer together? You know, There are times you do have to bring bad news to a person about somebody else. If you find out that your friend's son Smoking pot, and you need to go and talk to that friend about it. You should do that. You should go and you should bring them that truth. Uh, You should do that because they're the authority that God put over that person's life. They're the one who actually can take that information and use it to get closer to their child. The whole the whole hope of that conversation is to move a parent closer to their child. So sometimes you do have to bring that bad news when somebody's not there, but most of the time when we're doing that. We're gossiping, we're slandering, and the Bible calls it a foolish thing to, draw, to put that wedge between people. So we shouldn't lie, we should, we should speak the truth. We shouldn't divide, we should unite with our speech. Uh, next, uh, we shouldn't speak too much, we should speak carefully. Listen to Proverbs ten nineteen. He says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. This says, if you're noticing that you sin a lot with your speech, Maybe it's because you talk a lot. And maybe if you just spoke less, you wouldn't sin as much. Um, you know, this is kind of the, you know, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't, don't do that. Um, if I sin when I speak, maybe by speaking less, I'll sin less. Listen to Proverbs 13:3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 10:8 says, The wide of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. As Christians, we, we are people who are supposed to speak, but we're supposed to be quicker to listen, quicker to hear. And then this one's funny, Proverbs 17, 28. He says, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. And you, you can hear this teacher teaching his teenage son this. He says, listen, they'll think you're smart if you don't say anything. Just, just, just sit there, nod your head, close your lips, don't say anything, and they'll think that you're a smart guy. And and the point here is that because words are powerful, we're supposed to use them thoughtfully. And if we just talk and talk and talk all the time, it's hard to be thoughtful with our words. Our daughter Lydia, she's eight, and right now she's learning to shoot a bow and arrow over her grandma and grandpa's house. And when she's over there doing that, I mean, she's being taught an awful lot of safety. You know, keep the thing pointed down that way. Uh, Here's how you pull it back and just roll the string a little bit so the arrow is not flopping off. Uh, Don't turn around and say what when, when we talk to you from behind. We're teaching her all this stuff so that she can learn to use a powerful weapon in a good way and not do damage with it. But for her to do that, she has to be careful she has to be meticulous. She has to go slowly. She has to think about what she's doing. And the way that we're supposed to use our words as Christians is supposed to be similar to that. It's like we're handling a weapon, which can have power and be very useful, but can also do a lot of damage if we use it in the wrong way. And so sometimes that means we just have to speak a whole lot less frequently, said the preacher. So, so let's keep going here. Um, So we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to divide people. We're not supposed to be thoughtless and careless with our speech. Also, we shouldn't be people who provoke anger intentionally, but we should turn it away. Proverbs 18.6 says, A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. He says, if you're a fool, you're going to get a beating, and you're going to deserve it. Um, You asked for it. And if you just keep saying things to try to provoke people, eventually you'll provoke them. Eventually, it will work. Now, now there is a place, and we'll talk about it in a second, for speaking correction, for arguing a point, uh, for saying things with force. Jesus was not mealy-mouthed. He wasn't soft in his language all the time. Sometimes he said hard things, but he wasn't unnecessarily provocative. And as Christians, this is what we really have to, to weigh when we're saying things. Do I need to be provocative here, or is a gentle answer the best way? Because most of the time, just answering gently is the best way. Listen to Proverbs 15.1. It says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you've ever been in that mood, you know, before you've had your coffee, you get into work, and there's that one guy who just annoys you, and you just want him to be mad at you, and so you just want to say something to provoke that anger and just start something, he says, don't do that. He says, speak the soft words that will turn away That kind of wrath don't provoke anger unnecessarily proverbs 25 15 he says with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone so patience and calm can advance a cause more sometimes than clubbing somebody and wise people can be in a situation where everybody's blowing up everybody's getting mad but we're the ones who are able to vent some of that pressure calm things down turn down the temperature in the conversation Give a patient and wise answer. And that patient and wise answer sometimes can be an awful lot more powerful than the guy who's screaming and flipping out. You know, when you're, in that, when you're in that conversation and that one person loses their temper, you know that they've lost. You, you know that immediately they're discrediting themselves and people aren't respecting what they have to say because they obviously can't rule their own spirits. They can't control themselves. And so people are going to listen to the person who stays calm more than that other person. So he says just, Keep calm, carry on, speak the truth, but speak it in love and speak it with patience. Next, we're supposed to be people who avoid perverse speech and speak with purity. Listen to Proverbs 10.32. It says, The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. So we're called to be people who don't speak in perverted ways and also just don't speak in rude ways. Um... I know this is the temptation when we joke around, and I like a good laugh as much as anybody. Uh, Debbie and I went to see Brian Regan when he came to town, comedian this last year, and it was so funny, and at the same time, very clean, and we were laughing so hard that we left with our faces hurting. There were tears streaming down our face during his entire show because it was hilarious, just good, clean, observational comedy. The guy wasn't telling dirty jokes. He wasn't saying things just to shock us. He was just funny. And the Bible says that's good stuff. It says a merry heart does good like a strong medicine. So it's good to be able to laugh. It's good to be able to make a joke. It's good to be able to be funny. But what we try to do sometimes is imitate the raunchy comedians who will say something that's dirty and funny to get a reaction. And that shouldn't be us. And we should be able to use words well. And if you're someone who can be funny, I mean, don't try to be funny if you're not, but if you're someone who can be funny, go for it. Uh, Be funny. Use that. Use that as a gift from God. But don't fall into the temptation to speak in perverse ways. So we're not supposed to be perverted. This means that any kind of sexual humor really doesn't have a place with us. Uh, that's, what se- that's what she said jokes shouldn't really fit in the Christian mind. We shouldn't be the people who are quick to utter those things because they shouldn't be permeating our hearts. Um, 1 Corinthians, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it says that love is not rude in chapter 13. And you say, well, what's rude? How do I know what rude is in, in my culture? It seems like that can be determined by my context. It definitely can. But what that says is that as Christians, we are supposed to ask, ask our context what's rude here and then not speak in rude ways. Um, it, there are places where the Bible tells us to do things that we don't know how to do them unless we figure out what our culture says is rude and, and what's, what's not rude. Uh, for example, the Bible says, give honor to whom honor is due. If you go to China, that might mean bowing before somebody. In other places, it might mean using a title um, and and calling them Mr. or Doctor. There can be a number of different ways to show honor. If it's a husband with his wife, it might mean that showing her honor is buying her flowers and opening the door for her on the car. We don't know what's rude and what's not rude unless we ask our culture what's rude and what's not rude. And when we see those things that are rude, he says just don't do it. We're not supposed to, in our speech, say the things that people would say are rude or perverse so there are universal laws that are always true everywhere, but then that universal law that says don't be rude, we need to ask our culture, what does that mean? And then be the people who are polite. Be the people who do give honor and who don't speak perverse things. Proverbs 22, 17, uh, for our speech to really give life, it should be wise instead of perverse. He says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them... Are ready on your lips. You, you probably know the person who has that perverted speech just ready on their lips, where you feel like you just can't say anything around that guy because he's going to turn it into some kind of innuendo that you didn't intend and um, he'll just start laughing at something that you didn't intend to be funny and he twisted something. He said, Take that guy and be the opposite of him so that the wisdom of God is ready on your lips. Have your heart and your mind so permeated with the scriptures, ha- have it so permeated with the Bible. That what's ready to fire out of your mouth is wisdom, not perverted things. We'll we'll get to where this is all coming from in a second. but, uh, But next, we need to make sure that when we speak, we speak to win people, not just to display our intelligence or win an argument. Proverbs 16, 23. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So part of persuading people is giving them knowledge but also speaking in a way so that they can receive it. And this is hard. You know, when you first get knowledge, what you love to do is beat everybody over the head with it. You see this a lot of times with someone who just comes to faith in Jesus, where um, they're so excited about all this knowledge they have, they learn about Jesus, they learn the truth, and then they go out with that truth to beat everybody up with it and to just tell everybody how dumb they are and show them how smart they are. And their approach to people never wins people. What it does is it makes everybody think Christians are just arrogant jerks he says someone who's wise in the way that they speak speaks persuasively that you're not just speaking for yourself where you just say i gotta say something i've just got to vent here you're speaking to try to win people and win hearts this requires a ton of wisdom it requires patience and thoughtfulness it requires prayer it requires really getting to know the people that you're talking to because your aim is to win their heart your aim's not just to win the argument and that is so much harder to do Good communicators are people who know how to make our speech attractive. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. And the picture there is those words are beautiful. I want to believe those. I'll tell you, there, there are authors out there who are leading people astray and leading them away from the gospel, and the way they're doing it is they've made their words so attractive. They're so good at this and they're using this for evil. Well, as Christians, we should get good at the way that we use our words and we should use it for good, to lead people to Christ. You know, a big part of that is to learn to speak at the right time. Um, Husbands, this will help our marriages in a huge way if we start to learn that there are times to speak and there are times not to. Uh, I know sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, we'll be sitting down. And at the end of the day, Debbie likes to talk a lot more than I do, um, where I I like to kind of sit home and just totally relax, not talk much. Debbie likes to talk about things that are going on, talk about problems. And one of the things I had to learn early on in our marriage was that she wasn't talking because she was looking for a solution. And when she was telling me the problems that were going on during the day, my temptation as a guy is to say, well, let me solve this. You know, give me the nail and I'll hit it with my hammer. Um, you, wait, let me cut you off. You don't even need to go any farther with the problem. Let me tell you what you need to do. Let me solve this for you. And I lay out the solution, but the solution that she was really going for more than anything was the connection with me. She wanted the relationship more than just the solution at that time. So there's a right time to speak what I think is the solution, but there's also a wrong time. And part of wise speech is learning what's the right time, what's the wrong time, uh, when are we supposed to talk and when are we not supposed to talk? Uh, here's a funny one: Proverbs 27:14. He says, "Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing." So if you're one of those chipper morning people and, and first thing in the morning you're just chirping out the house and, and you're just full of the joy of the Lord and you want, you're singing I've got the joy, joy, joy and you're going into work and you want to communicate that joy to the people who are there and here's this guy who sits at the cubicle next to you and he hasn't had his coffee yet. Proverbs says you might as well be cussing at him. He says that, that speaking the right thing in the wrong way at the wrong time is just like speaking the wrong thing. Now this makes our communication much harder. It makes it much more nuanced how we're supposed to communicate because we're, we're going for winning people. We're not going for just talking. It's tough. What's also tough is that at times we have to be people who point out errors. Uh, listen to, to Proverbs ten seventeen. It says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. He says, sometimes there are wise people out there who are doing something wrong or thinking the wrong way, and our job when we see that as Christians is to speak truth into that. To to say there's something wrong with what you're doing or the way that you're thinking. The art of doing that and of finding a person who's wise enough to receive it isn't one that comes naturally to many of us. We like to get in a fight, we like to be angry, or we like to avoid that situation, but to speak a correction in a way so that it's received and so that real change happens is difficult to do. Proverbs twenty seven five says, "Better is open rebuke than hidden love." So part of good and patient speech is that correction, but it's correction that's aimed at winning people. So anyway, there's there's the stuff that weighs on us. We hear that, and I doubt any of us are, are walking out of here going there. I got that down. Um, hopefully there's there's something challenging next week. Uh, hopefully that we're we're leaving here going, man, I'm falling short all over the place. And and here's here's even some worse news. We can't do this. I mean, we, we, we'd like to think we can. We'd like to take all those things and say, well, I just do those eight things with my speech, and then I'll be great. I'll be pure in my speech. I will be this perfect guy who's able to speak in the right way. But the truth is we can't. Listen to what James says in the New Testament. In James 3, verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. In the likeness of God, for the same from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So he says, nobody can tame your tongue. He says there's nobody perfect, and the evidence of a perfect person is that they can tame their tongue because all other sins are easier to get those sins to tap out than the sins of our speech. So we read that, and that's, that's discouraging. I and mean, we already know that we shouldn't be the way we are. It, it feels convicting almost to come in and sing worship songs to God after getting in a fight with your spouse on the way here. It, it feels convicting to go out and know that during the week, you're cursing people. You're gossiping about people. You're lying and then getting together on Sunday morning to praise God. And James says, yeah, you're absolutely right. It should not be that way. And he says, but the only people who can stop that are absolutely perfect people. Well, that's, that's too bad. <laughs> so, so, so what do we do? I mean, what's the source of this? What's the source of all this evil that's coming out of us? Why are we producing salt water and fresh water? Listen to Matthew twelve thirty four. He says, you brood of vipers, It's Jesus talking, um, this is one of those hard words that needed to be spoken. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So our problem is not just in our words, our words come from somewhere. Our words come from our hearts, and that's where the problem is. And a big reason that it seems like we can never change our words, we can never tame our tongues, is because we don't go at the source. I mean, we go out and we say, I'm going to do this this week, I'm going to speak well this week, and we try it for a while, but it's just like a New Year's resolution where maybe January 15th we're still doing it, and then it's gone. So we make these resolutions and hope they'll give us power over our sin, but ultimately, if our sin isn't attacked right at the root, attacked at the heart, it doesn't change. So how do we change the heart? How how do we get to that? The big truth, and this is the one that we always come back to, is that if we believe in Jesus like we should, and if Jesus comes to dominate our hearts and we believe in his gospel, which is the message that though I was sinful in my speech, but Jesus, because of his grace and mercy, came and loved me. He lived a perfect life and then he died for me. He was buried and he rose against so That If I believe in him, I'm loved and accepted by God. If I believe that gospel and that becomes the primary issue in my heart, Jesus becomes the big thing on the throne of my life. He becomes the, the biggest force in my heart. If that's the case, then that starts to change everything. You know, the reason that I sin in my speech is because something comes to dominate me that becomes bigger to me than Jesus. The reason I lie is because I want people to think that I'm better than I am. I want to change that story enough so that you'll be more impressed with me. Because I don't believe enough that I'm loved and accepted by God, I've got that idol of human approval still sitting on the throne of my heart, and I'm trying to feed that idol. And that's where lies come from. Or I lie on a sales call because I need more money. And money becomes my God and, and the comfort that it offers, the power that it offers. And because I have to have that comfort and power because I don't believe enough in what I have in Jesus, then I find myself lying. You know, Maybe we could change our speech if we could script out our entire day. You know, if we could script everything out and only say what's in the script and walk around with a teleprompter all day long, maybe then we would, would not be speaking sinful things. The problem is when we start to go off the cuff. And when we start to shoot from the hip and the problem is that's most of our day most of what we say during the day we didn't plan on saying we usually don't get out of bed and say i'm hoping to go out and lie today i'm hoping to go out and gossip and maybe if i could just send out a harsh word and make someone mad at me none of us have that goal that that's not what we try to do first thing in the morning when we get up but the problem is that's just what naturally comes out of our hearts Shoot from the hip, and and what comes out of the hearts ends up being that polluted water. The solution to that is to change what's in the heart, to to identify those heart idols and replace them with Jesus and what He did. And when I gossip, I'm doing that because I want to divide people with my speech because I feel really insecure and I don't trust enough that God's control over my life is good, so I gotta control situations. When I talk too much, it's probably because I'm in a situation that I feel like I need to control. I need to own this room right now. I need to own this conversation because I don't trust God's control or his work on all these other people's hearts. When I come across as angry in my speech, it's probably because I'm angry. It's probably because there's something I'm defending or something, some idol that I want that I'm frustrated because I don't get. And that anger comes across and it's not the soft answer that turns away wrath, but it's the kind of answer that stirs up a fight and invites a beating. But the solution is not by just trying to change what we say on the outside. But the solution is to, in every corner of our hearts, become worshipers of Jesus who believe that gospel, who believe that the love and acceptance of God is enough for us. And then once we believe that, that's where the real heart change occurs, and then we find that what comes out when when we're shooting from the hip isn't as polluted. Now, again, we've all got a long way to go. None of us are perfect. You know, all of us still have that salt water coming out with the fresh water. But the more that Jesus can truly become our God and the more we can be people who are focused on his cross, the more our speech becomes life-giving. So The solution, as always, is to continually look to him. You know, Jesus was this guy who, who spoke perfectly all the time. No one ever spoke like he did. He lived an absolutely perfect life, even in terms of the words that he said. But then there was one time when he acted like a fool. Remember, he says, if you're a fool, you should be quiet and not say anything. Um, And then they'll think that you're intelligent. Jesus was intelligent. Jesus made the universe. He spoke everything into existence. But then when he was standing there on trial before his cross, they're asking him questions and he could have spoken words that not only convinced these people that he was God, but he could have spoken words that called down 10,000 angels right in front of him. But instead of doing the wise thing and speaking wise words, he chose at that time to become the fool for us and keep his mouth closed. And he did that so that he could go to the cross and die and be buried and rise again so that we could one day be made wise. When we come to believe in that, when we believe that Jesus, who was wise, took the road of the fool so that we fools could become wise, that transforms us. That changes us, it changes the way we live, the way we think, the way that we speak, and that's what makes our speech more life-giving. That's what makes our lives more life-giving when we become these people who truly believe that gospel in all those corners of our heart that don't really believe it yet. But for a second, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes. You know, if you come in today and you know that you don't have that relationship with God, you come in and you're not a Christian, uh, I know when we hear these commands and these laws, our guilt is really clear. We've all fallen short. We've lied. We've gossiped. We, we've divided people with our speech. We've been angry. We've, been, we've provoked wrath. We've done all these foolish things. And so we've got nothing on our resume to present to God and say, God, here, accept me because of this. We, we just don't have it. But the good news of Christianity, the good news of the gospel, is that God, who is, is good and all, pure and righteous in every way, He came to this earth. He lived that perfect life. He never spoke an evil word. But then he died. He died the death that we deserved. On that cross, he was crucified for our sins, including the sins of our mouths. He was buried and he rose again so that the Bible says whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're here today and you recognize the way that you've fallen short, which we all do, and then you believe that gospel... In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that, that acceptance that you can have from God, just turn to Him and believe. And, and He promises that if you do turn to Him, of all those who come to Him, He won't lose one. He says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, from the depth of your heart, you can cry out and say, God, I'm guilty. I see it. I know it. I know it's true. I know I deserve your judgment. I deserve your wrath. I deserve your beating. But I believe in your cross. I believe you took that beating for me. You took what I deserved, so I could have life. Now, If that's you and, and that's really the cry of your heart, God promises of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. The, the gospel is absolutely free. This message of Christianity is available to everyone and it's not available to people who think they've got it all together or try to do it on their own. It's available to people who recognize their brokenness and trust in Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, I know there's, there's a weight on us from our words. We, we all fall short. None of us are perfect. And so those parts of our hearts that just don't believe anymore, they bubble up in our words. Now's a good time for us as Christians to confess those things to God. Say, God, I know what the standard is. I know that I'm supposed to have pure speech, but I don't. And God, I confess to you that that, I, that points to my impure heart. That points to my unbelief. God, I confess that I do believe in you, but, but help all these corners of my heart that just don't believe yet. And Just take a minute now and confess those things to God. Confess the ways that those words have identified the, the unbelief and, and the poison in our hearts. The good news of the gospel is that though we have sinned and sinned in really bad ways, we have a Savior who's bigger than our sin. His grace is bigger than our sin. He came, he laid down his life for us so that we could have everlasting life. He paid the price for us. He took the beating for us. He took the wrath for us. So when we reach that point of confession and brokenness, don't turn to yourself for the solution. Don't say, I've been bad, so I'm going to solve this by being good from now on. Say, I've been bad, so I need a Savior. And then rejoice in the Savior that you've got. That means that when we stand to worship in a second, you can worship a Savior who has forgiven your sin, who has washed your sin away. There's nothing else you need to do to earn it. So if you had that fight with your spouse on the way here, you had those poisoned thoughts on the way here, you had those harsh words on the way here, Because of the cross of Jesus, they're already lifted. They're already gone. There's no penance. There's nothing you have to do to make up for it. Jesus paid for all of it. And the response that we have is just to worship, just to be thankful. And as our hearts become worshiping hearts, as we become thankful people, then our words will change. We'll look a lot more like life givers and a whole lot less like death givers. Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, your law is good it 's holy it 's just and it 's good, and it exposes us. Uh, God we can 't run away from it. but Lord, we thank you that you have diagnosed us well so that you could cure us well, and we thank you for the cure. We thank you for the cross. we thank you for the redemption that we have in you and the way that you spilled your blood so that we wouldn 't have to. You took a beating so that we didn 't have to. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for for taking the punishment of the fool. that we could have the life of the wise. We're not worthy of it. We're grateful for it. And so God, as we sing these songs to worship you, I pray that they would be the response of hearts that love you and are amazed at your grace. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your cross and your redemption. I pray all this in Jesus' name.